Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Well, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. Whether you're a guest with us today or you've called Sunridge home for years, we're just so grateful that you would join us this Sunday morning to worship alongside us, to learn together to fellowship. And as you saw perhaps in the email from this past Thursday, because we know you've been doing better about reading those, we had a little bit of a switch hitting move that had to take place today because Britt's daughter Aubrey was having a scheduled C-section for today. We can clap for that. Britt just texted me a picture of Lennox Jeter. He is so, so cute, but that might not be the right word because the kid is a beast like his dad, Donnie. I, I wish I could just show you the picture. Lennox is so great. Britt texted me and said that he has meat hooks because uh, his hands are super big. He's going to play sports like his daddy and grandpa. Uh, his weight was 9'7". You have to get pulled out early, and we don't know the height yet, so if I get a buzz in my pocket, I might just check it to see. Yeah, we're still waiting on the height, but if we get that important news, I might break it to you, because if the kid's like 30 inches, oh, it's, oh my goodness, so adorable. That's Bob Sandy texting Britt back. Never mind. <laughs> we're just doing things live here, Sandridge. Well, this morning, we're continuing in our series entitled Counter cultural, where we are studying through the letter of 1 Peter, which was written by its namesake, the Apostle Peter, decades after the resurrection. He's writing to Christians in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, as they're confronted with this sense of feeling like they are on the outside. And this morning, to get us started, since we're talking about being counter-cultural, I thought I would talk about how culture is developed just a little bit. Uh, this is going to be from a perspective that might be unusual for some of us, but one of our worship leaders here, Ben Cherry, who is on this side, I'm going to put Dr. Cherry on the spot. Where is Dr. Cherry? Oh, there he is. Dr. Cherry over there. His undergrad was in industrial organizational psychology, which is what I'm getting my master's in. And Dr. Cherry is, has his PhD in organizational behavior. So, Dr. Cherry, uh, you can correct me if I get any of this wrong, because I'm still trying to learn this stuff here. Uh, but one of the most cited professors when it comes to the development of culture in organizations is Ed Shine. He was an MIT Sloan professor, and he talks about how culture is a response to problems, of course, and they are discovered or invented or found by a group of people who are trying to deal with external issues or internal issues and cope with that. And so there are these patterns of assumption for how to respond to these things that eventually become more entrenched in the way that people decide they're going to do life. Or be an organization, a business, a family, a tribe, a people. 
Now, I am so, so tempted to keep checking my phone to see if it's Brit, but I just realized that I've got some friends and calls that play fantasy football with me on Sundays, and I don't want to uh, check for that reason, so that's not what I'm going to get to. But going back to Edshine and culture, if you take an organizational behavior class, you might perhaps come across an experiment that was done in 1966 where a scientist or a group of scientists placed five monkeys inside of a large room, and there's a picture up here for you to see. And these monkeys were placed in a large room, and they put a ladder in the middle of the room and some bananas at the top of the ladder, and they wanted to observe what these monkeys would do. And it didn't take too long for a monkey to decide that he or she would ascend the ladder to go after those bananas. But what the scientists decided to do next, and we can go to the next slide, is as that monkey was ascending, they decided that they would douse the remaining monkeys who did not have the boldness or the courage to go up the ladder with cold water. Now, how many of you like cold showers? Okay, there are a few of you out there. Great, that's awesome for you. Most of us don't enjoy doing that, even though there are purported benefits. Most of us don't enjoy cold showers, and so these monkeys experience cold showers because of one individual's decision to go up the ladder. And then we can go to the next slide. What the scientists decided to do is see what would happen if another monkey tried to go up that ladder. And so another monkey did. They doused the others with cold shower. They repeated it again. And the third time when a monkey tried to ascend the ladder, the other four went to that monkey and started grabbing it and beating it and trying to stop it from going up the ladder, which makes sense, right? So we can go to the next slide. The scientists decide, well, what if we remove one of the monkeys? What if we put in a monkey who has never seen the cold showers, who's never been exposed to climbing up the ladder of the bananas? And so, of course, this new monkey decided that he or she would go up the ladder to go get the bananas. Well, the remaining four did as they'd done before, and they beat this new monkey. Now, I know that that is really, really sad. So let's go to the very last slide here. What the scientists did is they eventually removed one monkey at a time so that in this large room, there were five monkeys, none who had ever been exposed to a cold shower. And yet, none of the monkeys would dare climb up the ladder. Because at some point in time when they were the new one into the group and they tried to go up, they were beat in the process of doing that. You see what had happened there? There had been a development of culture. And by the time these five monkeys were in there, none of them have ever gotten the cold shower. They, for whatever reason, didn't believe that they could go and go grab those bananas. And so in organizational behavior, you might have an employee say, I don't know why we do that around here. It's just the way things have always been done. You guys felt like that before? You show up to a place, maybe it's your work, maybe it's a family gathering or church, and you're not entirely sure why things are the way that they are, but something in the past has brought it and made it so that it is that way. And it's important to question those things. We have to ask, why are things the way 
that they are? Why do we respond as we do? In the passage of Scripture that Pam so greatly read to us earlier, we are seeing that there is a culture of suspicion that has developed around these early Christians. There's a culture of suspicion. And so what is happening here, even though we hear things like persecution or abuse, we've said it multiple times throughout this series, that the type of persecution that these early Christ followers were facing was actually more akin to verbal harassment. It had not yet intensified to the point of wide-scale persecution that was physical and scary, the martyrdom, the type that we are thinking about when we see scenes from the gladiator or times like that. And so this morning, the title for our message is Finding Boldness in a Culture of Belittling. Because this is what these Christ followers are facing. But before we talk about how we find boldness or what boldness is, let's talk about belittling just a little bit. Let's look at a simple definition here. To belittle, it's to make a person or thing seem small or unimportant. It's trivializing, dismissive, disrespectful. And when we're belittled, people give us statements that can cause us to second guess ourselves, a position we hold, a decision we've made or making or are contemplating. Maybe you have shared something in a public space and someone nearby has just kind of said, that's, that's ridiculous. Why would you ever do that? Or maybe they've said something to put you down in a subtle way and then they follow that with, come on, seriously? I'm like, can't you take a joke? And the thing is, when we have these slights come out us, We might try and muster up that strength, right? We've talked about it before where we say to ourselves that sticks and stones won't break or break our bones, but words will never hurt us. But we do understand words do affect us. And so to experience belittling is a difficult thing. I want to read from a man named Noah who hosts a podcast called The Scathing Atheist And he says this, sometimes people say, Noah, you belittle Christians a lot. And I respond, yeah, I do my best. So no, I'll be offering no apology for it here or anywhere else in the foreseeable future. When people point out that I belittle Christians, I respond the same way that an Olympic sprinter would respond if somebody asked her why she was in such a hurry. After all, that's kind of the point. Now, there are those that would say this is counterproductive. They say that the caustic brand of atheism I subscribe to is antithetical to the goals of minimizing the role of religion in society. They present a circle of the wagons mentality that I might inspire if I'm too insulting. They point out that the more attainable goals of keeping religion out of science class in the courtroom can be hamstrung by the more grandiose goal of stamping out organized religion altogether. And what's more, they may be right. I still don't care. My goal as an atheist activist is to marginalize religion. I work toward a world where anybody who believes in something without evidence is embarrassed to admit it in public. I want reason by way of shame. What does that generate in you? Anger? Fear? Does it make you want to be bold? 
to puff your chest, to respond back. You know, when I hear that quote and when I read that, I get thankful. I get thankful because I'm grateful that there are people all over this world who can see things differently than me. I don't have to feel threatened by that. Because clearly, there seems to be something on this end that might be producing a threat of sorts. And so I think there are surprising ways that you and I can exist in a culture where we feel threatened, where we get worried. Because when we hear countercultural and we see statements like this, we might want to circle the wagons in a defensive response, or we might want to go on the full-fledged attack and assault. But perhaps in the way of Jesus Christ, there are surprising measures that you and I can take in our day in and day out lives that look differently. So we're going to go through this passage of scripture, similarly to what I did the last time I taught through First Peter, where I'm going to be, I just have the note sheet here, and I filled in the blanks for myself this morning to make sure I knew what was coming. And I'm just going to talk us through this passage of Scripture. And here's your first fill in the blank. Our passage for this morning can actually be understood as a response to a culture that is belittling Christians, but, and this is key, ironically, is atheists. And you're like, what are you talking about, Jed? These are Christians. They're Christ followers. How is it possible that in their society and culture, they were actually being seen as practicing atheists? Well, I'll show you as we work through this text. We begin in chapter 3, verse 13. And again, this is flip-flop. Next week, Britt's going to go back and teach the section that precedes this. But in verse 13, it says, Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are, first, another fill in the blank, blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. Now let's pause there. You suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. It harkens back to Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. Where he's going through the Beatitudes and toward the end of the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are those who excuse me, blessed are you when people persecute you or revile you or utter all kinds of false things on account of my name. So Jesus is telling his disciples it's going to happen. People are going to be saying things about you that are untrue and hurt, but you are blessed. You are happy. You can see life in a way that is different. And then Peter follows it up by saying, do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. So what do these people fear about these Christians, these Christ followers. What do they fear? Well, we have to understand that in this point in time, when we look at Greco-Roman society and we see their culture at large, it is highly religious. They wouldn't have even seen it as just highly religious, however, because all of their life, all of their social ordering, whether it was political or religious or inside of their homes, educationally, all sectors of their society were ordered around the fact that there were a whole host of gods. We hear Rome, we think about the goddess Roma, 
And in all of their locations and regions, there were temples to different gods. And it was just assumed that in your life, you practiced all of this. It was inseparable. So now think about these converts who their whole lives have been going to different temples and sacrificing and proclaiming that their country, their kingdom is connected to this God and that God, and suddenly they're not doing that anymore. They're not going to temple, but they're starting to meet in homes. You know what it's like today when someone decides they're going to stop going to church and maybe go meet in a home or something somewhere, and we get all worried because like, no, this is, you're supposed to be here. Well, that same concern was happening to these Christians. They were looking irreligious. And so their lack of belief, this atheism in the established gods is having their culture question, what in the world are you doing? And we can see that further when Peter writes, but in your hearts sanctify, there's your next fill in the blank, Christ as Lord. Now, sanctify here, I've given you just a little bit of Greek, is in the aorist tense, which refers to something that's happened in the past, but it's not just simple past tense like it just happened. Aorist tense is a snapshot of something that's happened, but we don't know exactly when that has finished and when it's concluded. And so the active voice component here of sanctify means they made a decision to sanctify, to set apart, to make holy Christ as Lord, and yet in their life right now, that act of setting Christ apart must continue to be happening. So here's the key for this section. We choose to set apart Christ as Lord, which was seen, again, as an early confession of atheism. See, if you have all of these other gods who used to determine the way your life looked, but suddenly you have chosen to set apart, to sanctify, to make holy Jesus of Nazareth, this man who comes from this uninspiring place, and you believe that he is exalted and to be set apart, that he is the Son of God, then the people around you are rightly going to wonder what in the world you're doing. We see this over and over in the New Testament. The people are confounded by this choice of Jesus. Why Jesus? And so we continue reading, always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you, yet you do it with gentleness and reverence. And we see the word defense there at the Greek word apologia. How many of you guys have heard of the word apologetics? right? Reasonable faith, having a defense for our faith. Now, this is going to seem disconnected, but I'll connect it in just a little bit. Uh, I do a lot of premarital counseling for couples, and if you're wondering how in the world someone like me counsels couples for marriage, don't worry. I, I really don't tell them what to do. Uh, the type of premarital counseling that I do is supposed to allow couples to see each other and what's there. I, I really don't offer solutions. I listen and ask questions. And one of the ways that I do that in premarital, it's really fun, is I give couples a statement and then they close their eyes and then they rate it from one to five. So one is strongly agree and five is strongly disagree. 
And then they open their eyes and they see how the other person is rated. Now you can imagine, it's really, really fun. <laughs> so if you ask a couple, for instance, like, my fiance is good at listening to me, right? Close your eyes. <laughs> or if you ask a, a couple to rate the statement that my fiance is good at apologizing. What about this one? My fiance is good at arguing. What in the world does that even mean? So it's fun, and almost every time when I get to that juncture in the conflict and communication section where couples are rating whether or not their fiance is good at arguing, I'm fascinated. It's almost every single time. They close their eyes, and one person will respond with a one or a two. So that's strongly agree. Like, my fiance is really good at arguing. And then the other person is over here like, and they put like a five or a four. My fiance is really bad at arguing. Then they open their eyes and they see what they already know. That one person's really good at winning all the arguments and the other person's terrible at it. And it's really interesting because couples in this place, there's laughter, sometimes there's comfort. Sometimes people say, well, like, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just good at arguing. Like I'm a rational thinker. I'm like an attorney when I come to these spaces. I just kind of have the answers. And the other person's like, well, I just, I don't really know if it's worth the argument. So I just concede things, right? Just, and you know what's funny is it's not male or female. It really is just so much personality. There's this imbalance of power there that couples see. And when they realize what's hard about that and how that's going to produce a lot of struggle for them, I help them by just opening up this long, long, just pardon my notes with all these different couples, and I read them these anecdotes of couples who are explaining their rating. I read it anonymously so that they can see that they're not the only ones that struggle with arguing and conflict, and there's usually a person who really likes to argue, and that's not always the most helpful. How am I connecting this to apologetics? Well, apologetics is put on this pedestal for a lot of us of being able to logically and rationally defend our faith. And it's a really important thing because some of us are wired that way. We're intellectually, we need to be so stimulated that the rational arguments and the systematic thinking and all that, it just got to make sense to us. And some people really, really enjoy that. And people like that usually really enjoy arguing. And so what happens in apologetics is we have individuals who are really, really smart and get into these spaces and they both just kind of get to show off who's smart. And then everyone leaves and no one's changed really how they thought. But every now and then, of course, it has been used. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of it. Quite frankly, my brain is stimulated in that way. And when I was a teenager and memorized this portion of scripture, always be ready to make a defense. I mean, I was pumped up about that. I've changed over the years, however, to see that Peter's intent wasn't about being great at arguing over things that are logical or rational, even though that's so, so important. Remember, for these early Christ followers, nothing that they're doing is rational. It's completely illogical 
to give up your way of thinking and behavior and operating and treating other people, to try and love your neighbor, to see the people around you as better than you, to hold their interests more highly, to find ways to subvert the system, but quietly and gently, it is irrational. And the reason why it's irrational is because it's based on what Paul would say is foolishness to the world. Here's the key. The original apologetics, they weren't rational arguments. The apology was hope rooted in the absurdity of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Now, I'm saying that in a way that doesn't sound so absurd because we're so used to hearing that Jesus Christ is crucified and risen. But let's just think about that for a moment. I'll share about this a little bit more in a few months in our November series that we're working on called Breakthrough. We're in the second week. I will be talking about the absurdity and yet the grounding of the resurrection. And I'll be using my mom as an example after she passed away from liver cancer when I was 15, 16, I don't entirely remember. And and how I would have done anything to get my mom back for just even a few minutes. I can remember one day where I came home from school and I sprinted up the steps and I pushed the door of our parents' master bedroom open to say, Mom! And I realized she wasn't there. Can you imagine if I showed up someday and she were actually there? resurrected, brought back to life. Every single one of you has a person in your life that if that person were even just resurrected for 60 seconds, and you felt them, and you saw them, and you engaged, and maybe you clung to them, it would change so much. And part of what it would change is that everyone around you would think you are out of your mind. Because that doesn't happen. Can you imagine a whole response, a movement that begins with that absurd belief and experience? Can you see how nuts these other Christians were? They didn't have images of their gods. They didn't have statues. They didn't have temples. They were meeting inside of these homes talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who many of them had never met before. And they were trying to reorder everything. So look at what Peter continues to write. So keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if suffering should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. Now look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And Britt mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's kind of like a turning point in our passage. Chapter 2, verse 12, which says this, Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. Now remember, The Gentiles, those people, most of these converts, they were actually Gentiles themselves. And so when Peter's writing, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, it's 
It's being a way that the people who you've always known, your neighbors and your family members, the people that you worshiped with in temple, when they see you and they think you're evildoers because you've forsaken your religion and your way of life and you're following after a guy that you say has risen from the dead, they can be surprised that at the very least, you're treating people differently around you. Let's move now to verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Now remember early the aorist tense and the active voice for sanctify, setting Christ apart as Lord. Here, bring, that experience is happening simultaneous to that. So here's the key. As our hearts continually confess what is true apart from us, that Christ is Lord, we experience nearness to God. What I mean is this. When a person decided that they're going to say Jesus Christ is Lord, or when you and I choose to set apart Christ as Lord, it's not like suddenly Christ becomes Lord. Does that make sense? He was already Lord. He was already set apart from all those other deities. He was already the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. He was already and always will be who he is. And yet this decision to acknowledge who he is allows us to experience what he has already done. He's already suffered to bring the unrighteous, you and I, into the presence of God to reconcile us, and we can experience nearness to God. Now, how important is it to feel nearness to God when you and I often feel what? Farness, separateness. Do you guys know what it's like to wonder if God is actually there because you don't have an idol or a statue? You can't see God. You can't look Jesus in the eye. And so you feel this separation what about the separation that you and I experience because of the sin in our lives? You know, the other day, uh, we had just come home from our soccer games. And uh, Truy, our youngest, he, he's not playing any sports yet. Uh, we tried to put Truy in a little basketball class, and uh, he, he just, it just wasn't his jam. And so, like, he would come over to the chain link fence and like, Dad, Dad, I don't want it. And, you know, it was, it's cute. He, who knows? So we finished soccer. And what I've discovered is that after the days where Truy has watched a brother or both of his brothers partake in youth chaos. Uh, that's funny. I just decided to say that right now. Um, he, he tends to, to find ways, of course, to, to feel close to us right? And so we, we really always try and give our boys nearness and closeness. It's not just attention. I mean, it's like we love them. We're interested in them. It's not to check off a box, but sometimes it can feel like that, right? When you're tired, it's like, man, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Like, I'm out all day. It's hot. So we're, we're inside, and truly, I don't know what this, I think it's like a garlic masher or something. I've never used it in my life. It's like this brown thing, and he goes up to the TV. Yeah. <laughs> and he just like starts doing some of that to it. And I didn't buy this TV, it was a gift. All right, so it was a nice TV. He's like 
And I'm like, okay. He and I just watched a superhero episode where Hulky, the Hulk, is having to deal with his anger and you've got to like count to five and I do that with Chewie too and so it was funny and so I'm like, okay, I can like be like the Hulk and count to five instead of freaking out over this TV that I didn't buy and I say, true, true, don't do that. And he keeps going, I'm like, bro, bro, seriously, please, please stop and give it to daddy. And he's got the cutest face, but it's like, nope, he's not going to give me that thing. And so I, all right, I'm get down my knee. Bruh, bruh, please give daddy the garlic masher. You're going to ruin our TV and you can't watch Coco Melon or whatever you watch. And so he, he gives it to me, but then like he starts like, uh, uh, like play punching me, you know, like, oh, uh, like I'm tough, dad. You know, and, and like, and then Mal comes over and he starts to like swipe at Mal and like hit at her. And when I'm not doing well mentally, that's when I struggle as a parent, right? And it's like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, clearly, this isn't, that's me at my worst. And I have been not a good father at different points in time, but in the moments where Christ is with me, I can do what I think all of us, I just get down, it's like, bruh, bruh. and I pick him up, and he's still kind of smacking me in the face a little bit, and the next thing you know, like, he's all good. It's like, I don't even know what happened at that point, like, Brebra is going around, and he's laughing again, and he's giving me some kisses on the face. All he wants is closeness. All he wants is nearness. You know, when I've been at my worst, the times where I have essentially acted in a way that has made my kid, it's like, I want them to recognize they did it wrong. Like, that's you. I've done it. I can see the ways that I've crushed them. For what? Why? To prove what I know already, that clearly they did something that I didn't like? I mean, what in the world? And what does that breed in them? A shame, a wanting to hide, a fear. What happens, however, when we experience the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? When we see that the narrative through Scripture gives us this most surprising climax where God would give up everything for nearness closeness, where God would empty everything for the sake of what we both want. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation of the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And if you think you have all the answers, good luck with this part. There really aren't commentators that have a good grasp of what this is. There's reference to intertestamental literature that we now have in the Apocrypha, like the book of Enoch, some parallels to what we see of the oddness in Jude, some midrash that it's made its way through. Either way, there's a familiarity amongst these people of 
this aspect of the resurrection where Jesus goes and proclaims to the spirits who are in prison. And so many people have speculated about that. And quite frankly, there isn't a good way to know entirely what that is. But I find it fascinating that in the Isaiah passage, which I referenced earlier, you can read it later on. In that Isaiah passage, Yahweh is being set apart as holy and telling the people not to fear what the others fear. And then there's this odd section later on that talks about these spirits in prison. And either way, the bigness of Yahweh is that he is God over all. And so it's wild that Peter would use that Isaiah passage and place it with sanctifying Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a highly Christocentric piece there, but we can't get into all that. So what I want to do very briefly is reference Noah and how I totally like bought into the VeggieTale version of that story, and I didn't even realize it. I was convinced, you guys. I was so convinced that there's this section in Genesis where Noah's building the ark, and everyone starts to like slander him and like go, Noah, what are you doing? You're so lame. Like belittle him. And I thought it's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfect. And I read it, and it's not there. And that's why we make sure not to just say things. So it's actually not in the story, but of course we do have this story of Noah and his family being saved, and Peter says they're saved through water. Now you can go back and read Genesis chapter 6, verses 5, 3, and again, so many people have tried to make sense of this because they're uncomfortable with the fact that in the scriptures it said that God regretted in his heart that he made human beings, and so he decided essentially he's going to hit reset and start all over and so many people have said, well, that's anthropomorphic. It's like, God can't really feel those things. And, but I still read the Bible literally. Well, I don't know what you do with that, but it is raw. God regrets in his heart. And then this flood, it wipes out the earth and, and these individuals are saved. And it sounds harsh. And when you look at what happens next... And this is where we close out in baptism, which this prefigure now saves, present tense, you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal, a request, a prayer to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. And what I want to say about that section, how Peter contrasts these things is this. When we look at the water imagery in the Noachian story, it wipes everything out to start over. But we know how it continues to go, right? It's not like then humans are perfect and everyone's in a relationship with God. Now think about baptism and water. When you and I, if we so choose to be baptized, when we go down into the water and we erased again, the world outside us hasn't been swept under some cataclysmic flood, right? It's not like washed away or wiped. Technically, we can look around and say nothing has changed. And that's the key. When we go down in baptism, the world outside the water doesn't change, but we're raised to Christ to see it changed. I've cited some passages in Colossians. You can read through Romans chapter 5 through 8, love that section. I think it's chapter 6 where we see that imagery of baptism being buried in the likeness of Christ and raised in the likeness of his resurrection. But what I'm saying here 
is this. It's a lot more difficult to know that when we die with Christ and we're raised again, the world's just not wiped away. And now it's time for us to start trying to see it differently. New creation, opportunity for us. So I, at the beginning, told you that the title of this message is, How Do We Find Boldness If Belittled as Christ Followers? That's a question, at least, based off of the title. We seek to make bigger and properly emphasize our hope. That is the response for our lives. It's in Christ risen. How do we find boldness? If you open up a Word document, you can type things out there, and when you type it out, it'll come out in normal font face. But there's a choice that you can make when you're typing a Word document to emphasize. What is that? You can hit bold. You can command B if you like to use hotkeys. Danny Sugimoto probably taught me command B, You can choose to emphasize something. Uh, Let me be so honest with you. I might not be the right person to talk about this because I'm shielded from it. I'm not on social media. I have a very old Facebook that I haven't checked in years. So if you've requested to be my friend on there, it's not that I don't like you. It's just I don't check it. I don't have an Instagram or any of those things. I've chosen to try and be separate from that stuff because there are people right in front of me. And I've heard, I've heard that in this time that we're in, there's a lot of boldness that comes out on social media where people want to take a stand and be unapologetic for the truth and what's right, and our cause, and defending the faith, and protecting what's sacred. Friends, I'm not saying, and I'm not telling you that you should just stop all of that. The Holy Spirit can convict you however the Holy Spirit wants to convict you with whatever you decide to put out into the world in that manner, but is it possible Is it possible that we would stand to benefit from trying to consider the hope we have with gentleness and reverence that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead? Which means that he died for you and me, the world, all of us so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again, Paul writes, in the ministry of reconciliation section that we find ourselves in. You see, and I'm going to invite the band up. It is too easy when we get threatened or we fear society or culture to get really angsty about that and want to just, no, 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 no. And say it louder and dial it up more. You know what's interesting, though? Is if we go back to that original experiment about the threats of the cold showers for those monkeys, and I'm not saying we're monkeys, like, please don't. 
that's not what I'm saying, but just, just go with me here. Those monkeys, they just end up beating up on each other. You know what's interesting about apologetics and theology is that most of the damage happens inside of the church now because we have these really wonderful thinkers who are arguing with other Christians about what the Bible is and says. Or, and think about this, this past year for us. Do you guys realize that because most of the people on your social media hopefully are your friends or they were your friends or they're connected to you in some way, and many of you have a lot of friends in, in the church or in your family, do, do you realize that the positions and the stands that you've taken, that you've decided to forcefully put there, and I'm not advocating for either or, but just, just hear that the way that we do that and how often that has taken shape, that it has damaged within your circle of relationships? And then you wonder about the difference that we're making in the world for the Noah Logians who's, he doesn't need to belittle Christians. We're doing enough on our own. I mean, he could sit back and watch us and laugh at the absurdity of how you and I treat one another. And then after that, it's like, what about all the people that are watching us? What about the people who we do interact with that aren't Christ followers? What are we standing for or on? What if, and you could try this, what if our evangelism, our speaking out, our boldness could look like us saying, I know it's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. And I don't have all the answers. But I believe Jesus Christ was crucified for all of our sins. He's buried. He rose on the third day. I'd like to do something really quick before we end and our band begins to start. If you at some point in your life chose to sanctify Christ as Lord, to set him apart as Lord, would you just stand up right now? Would you? Would you stand if at one point, and I know that, and there are going to be people who sit, and that's okay. So don't just, that's okay. And if, if, you, if you did that at some point in time, and you decided that you would be baptized, that you would be buried with him, and that you would be raised in the likeness of resurrection and walk, in new life, would you remember that when Peter writes, baptism now saves you, it wasn't salvific in the sense of like, okay, so the actual act is going to get you to heaven. No, no, no. That's, that's so simplified. It's not how it works. Following Jesus, being raised to be delivered from him, says that it's not about how God does stuff in spite of our sin still. No, 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 no. It's in light of his saving. It's him. He's saving. He's doing this over and over. And if you're sitting down and you haven't stood yet, would you stand? And would you consider that these people around you have very different stories? And it might not be because everything made sense. That most of these people who have stood are rightly grounded in reason to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is absurd. It's absurdly great, wonderful, good, 
mind-blowing news because it says that before he did this surprising thing, he gave up everything so that you and I could be brought near to God. Let's worship in response to this invitation even now to be near in the presence of those around us. We can praise and sing and thank him. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.